0: The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Welcome
1: to another edition of the American Health Law Association's Fraud and Abuse Practice Group Podcast where we bring you the latest trends and developments in healthcare fraud enforcement. I'm Matt Wetzel, Vice Chair of Educational Programming for the Practice Group. Today's topic is government enforcement in the laboratory testing space. Each month we see more and more stories about fraud schemes being thwarted or rings of conspirators using laboratory testing as a means of bilking patients in the government. With me today are two health lawyers from Bradley Arendt Bolt Cummings, Soma Nuokolo and Gio Jaratana, both based in the Tampa, Florida office. Soma is an associate in Bradley's Government Enforcement and Investigations Practice Group. She's a former federal prosecutor and litigator and represents clients in civil investigations, white-collar criminal investigations, and federal court litigation, including False Cleans Act, KETAM, and healthcare fraud matters. Gio is also an associate with Bradley, and his practice includes assisting clients with civil And criminal investigations, enforcement actions, and compliance issues across various industries. Soma and Gio recently wrote a terrific, terrific article for AHLA on this topic, decoding DOJ's crackdown on genetic testing, high-profile indictments, and practical takeaways for the cancer and pharma genomics industries. The article is available on AHLA's website. Soma, Gio, welcome.
2: Thank you so much, Matt. We're so so happy to be here.
1: Absolutely. Well, before we get started, you know, it might help to give a little bit of a foundation uh, and background about genetic testing. So, if you want to share a little bit, of, a high-level overview of what do we mean when we talk about genetic testing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll start us off here. Um, so, first of all, first off, as you had mentioned, seminized practice is largely. Um, assisting, and advising clients, navigate government enforcement actions, um, both civil and criminal. And many of our clients are involved with the healthcare industry. And so when there's a large takedown, like what happened in September in the genetic testing space, um, it perks perks up our ears. And um, we're just so glad to be able to write about this topic for HLA. Um, so thank you for that. Um, with the genetic testing, you know, genetic testing, Matt, you probably would be able to speak more uh, broadly on the topic with your background, uh, but so and I have definitely become familiar with some aspects of the genetic testing um, with the recent takedown and with this article. And um, genetic testing comes in various forms um, and is administered in various ways, whether it be through blood sampling or tissue sampling Um, But for our purposes here, um, there are two primary tests that were involved and were the focus of the the crackdown in September by DOJ, and that is um, a test called CGX testing, which is cancer genetic testing, and PGX PGX testing, which is pharmacogenetic testing. Um, The cancer genetic testing is designed to... um, Look at an individual's susceptibility to de- uh, d- developing certain types of cancers. Um, so, with the pharmacogenetic testing, that is designed to look at an individual's um, genetic variations to determine how they're going to metabolize certain medications and therefore determine whether or not they're going to be effective. Um, and so Again, those are the two main tests that were at the forefront of this particular um, crackdown in September. Got
1: it. Thank you, and that's a great background. And you know, so it, it sounds to me as if what we're talking about here is testing uh, for uh, cancer detection and then and then testing to to determine whether specific drugs might treat a particular type of cancer based on, a person's genetic markup, and so I would, uh, I, I suppose, you know, the big question that we have today, and especially for our practice group members is, you know, w- w- what is the uh, government's interest in this area? What are some of the trends that you're seeing in this space as far as enforcement
2: goes? Yeah, so uh, the the large takedown that I referenced a couple times, it was in September, Um, And that was largely due to a federal investigation that was dubbed by the government called Operation Double Helix. And that was a coordinated effort with multiple agencies, the US Attorney's Office, the FBI, DEA, HSOIG. And in that, um, that investigation was spurred by, I think, two main things. And that was um, first, There was Medicare beneficiaries approaching the government complaining about being approached uh, for these genetic tests by marketers, and then also the government always follows the money, right? And there was a spike in 2017 and 2018 for these types of genetic tests being billed, Um, and so that sparked the government's interest to go ahead and start looking at these complaints more closely. So. Um, which ultimately resulted in this takedown in September where 35 individuals were charged or indicted um, for a loss amount, which is staggering, as a 2.1 billion loss amount that the government is alleging with this takedown.
1: this is a pretty
2: significant, sorry to interrupt, it sounds like no, a pretty
1: significant right. um, enforcement action. Uh, and uh, highly coordinated among multiple agencies, I would imagine. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about what 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 the general allegations are here. You know, who are the main players? What are some of the tactics that were alleged uh, to be at issue here? And, uh, and and you know, to sort of zero in for us on on uh, what were the bad acts
2: that were alleged
1: uh, in these cases.
2: Sure, sure absolutely. So the, the main players are the marketers. Um, telemedicine uh, companies and physicians and then laboratories and the government has alleged uh, is basically that the marketers are the driving force of these schemes They, and I, I use the word alleged because so and I come from the defense perspective of this <laughs> so you'll hear me say alleged a lot in that <laughs> um, the the government has alleged that these marketing companies have driven um, these schemes by first providing, approaching Medicare Medicare beneficiaries, um, convincing them to agree to take these tests. And then once they have, um, the government has also alleged that there's been what they've dubbed scare tactics to get them to agree to these tests. Um, Then in turn, once they had that referral, the the marketers utilized telemedicine companies to provide orders for these tests. Um, The government is alleging that these telemedicine physicians had limited interaction or no interaction with the beneficiaries before ordering these tests. Once the marketers have the orders, the government then has alleged that they're providing them to the laboratories brokering them off to the laboratories um, where the laboratories are then submitting it for reimbursement after processing the tests. Um, so that's just the general scheme alleged and and the main players uh, at, at play here. Um, and, 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 and how is the
1: government
2: concluding that these uh,
1: actors are uh, violating the law? You know what are sort of the the theories of legal liability and and, and some of the schemes that you're seeing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, most of the charges in these indictments are under the General Health Care Fraud Statute, Section 1347, and then also uh, violations of the anti Kickback Statute. Um, And so, of course, the the government also tags on conspiracy charges for violating the the AKS and also conspiracy to commit health care fraud. And it's just a given in most of these cases. And, And so um to support those theories of liability, the, the government is uh, alleging that these genetic tests were lacking of med- medical necessity, um, primarily because they don't believe these tests were being used to diagnose or treat, um, in this case, cancer. Um, instead, they, they were being used more as diagnostic tests which is not reimbursable and um the, the government is also alleging that the the underlying medical, uh telehealth visit was not reimbursable um that, that's another theory that the government is putting forth um i think someone's going to discuss a little bit more about um the telehealth requirements and how those have loosened up a bit sure. um and then as far as the aks and that I think this is the main reason that the government is really taking a close look is the, the relationships between the the marketers and the laboratories and the the tele, telehealth entities, all um, according to the government rate of um anti-kickback statute violations.
1: Um Great. Well, I, I, I appreciate the the insight and the download. And, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, do you have any of the citations or the complaints or uh, the names of any of these cases that, that folks could research? Uh, or if there's a website for the DOJ's Operation Double Helix that, that our listeners could visit, that would be great.
2: Sure. There is a, a, there's a great press release by uh, the DOJ giving um, a list of the um, different indictments of that initial crackdown. I am not sure the best way to communicate that um, press release, and I'm happy to provide that afterwards. Um, That's great.
1: We can we, we can upload that with the with the podcast. So so that'd be great. And you know, you mentioned um, telehealth, and I want to turn quickly. We had a recently had a really good podcast on um, the impact of COVID 19 on telehealth, and I know Soma, we spoke. Uh, previously about this issue, but do you want to talk a little bit about uh, telehealth and and some of the changes that we're seeing in light of COVID-19? You had some interesting thoughts on this.
0: Right. Um, And I know that you could discuss some of these on your most recent podcast, Um, but just to recap, recap, yes, CMS has uh, loosened some of the prior telehealth requirements, and it's mostly to allow healthcare providers more flexibility in providing services, especially you know during this time of uh, increased social distancing, and we don't really want people um, transmitting transmitting um, the disease or the virus, um, you know, by going into medical offices that might not be prepared um, uh, for you know transmission. So um, sure, the. Um, a lot of the changes have to do with the services that are eligible, the providers that can provide these, um, the telehealth visits, and um, um, the patients that um, are now eligible. So one important change is the geographic restrictions. Um, So previously, telehealth patients had to live in rural areas, and the rules have now been changed so that all Medicare beneficiaries are eligible for telehealth services regardless of where they live. Um, so whether they're in urban areas, um, they can still get telehealth um, appointments. And these are, are reimbursable where they weren't before. Um, another important change is HHS is no longer auditing for an established or prior patient physician relationship. So whether you're a new or established patient, you can get um, telehealth services. Um, Other changes have been HIPAA requirements. So previously you had to use a platform that um, was approved under HIPAA. Um, And now you can use a a, a wider range of platforms as long as they're not public-facing. So you can't use Facebook Live for a telehealth appointment, but you can use Zoom or Google Hangouts or even Facebook Messenger, video video chat, and then also um, convenient we use every day, like FaceTime, um, and the HHS OIG is also providing flexibility for healthcare providers to reduce or waive cost cost sharing or co-pays for telehealth visit, visits visits um, that are paid by federal healthcare programs. So, one of the theories of liability that the government has used in um, these genetic testing cases is that um, patients were being provided these prescriptions without paying copay, without um, Having to um, pay anything at all, and the government sometimes will see this as an inducement, um, which is um, illegal under the anti-kickback statutes. but this flexibility is it's certainly going to reduce some of the government's arguments um, that they previously used um, in, in the fact that you know if, it's, if it didn't qualify for reimbursement before and it now does, um, the government's not going to be able to use those arguments. Um, and you know, Gio mentioned sure. one of those important ones, which is um, what constitutes an eligible telehealth visit. Um, you know, one of the one of the government's main arguments in Operation Helix was that um, the service wasn't reimbursable because the underlying visit wasn't reimbursable, so the orders didn't um, meet the Medicare rules. But you know, now that they they're being a lot more flexible with what constitutes a reimbursable visit, um, these. Um, these changes are going to erode, you know, these prior theories of liability. And so I think that what we're left with is really the medical necessity arguments. Um, And practically speaking, um, given um, all that's going on with COVID-19, there's been a lot of experimental testing and innovation that's been going on um, in an effort to combat the healthcare crisis. So I think that outside you know, blatant scams. There is going to be a huge gray area in in kind of debating what constitutes medical necessity right now because the uh, the the circumstances are are constantly evolving.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, that's um, that's really good insight, and I think uh, you know you've added some additional layers of thought to what we previously discussed on this podcast and. You know, I, I appreciate your um, commentary on the flexibility that OIG is providing right now. And I wonder if you might want to share some additional thoughts about, uh, you know, the type of guidance that practitioners should look to in advising their clients or any practical compliance strategies, either in the lab enforcement space or uh, the COVID-19 impact to uh, telehealth. So, uh, Soma, Geo, any thoughts on, on those topics?
0: Well, You know, I think the best way um, to be proactive right now is to have an effective compliance program. You know, in recent years, DOJ has really focused on producing guidance documents that kind of outline what they expect out of compliance programs. They released one in 2017 and most recently in April of 2019. And um, at its core, you know, the the 2019 guidance asks three basic questions. First, you know, is the compliance is the compliance program well designed? Um, are companies applying it in good faith and earnestly? And then, does it work in practice? And um, a lot of the focus falls under the first question about whether the compliance program is well designed. And so, um, companies are really going to have to make sure that they that they have um, procedures and policies in place that are you know, designed well to detect um, misconduct um, and correct misconduct, um, that there's appropriate mechanisms in place for employees to report misconduct. Um, Internal audits, internal investigations um, will be important. Having compliance personnel that are qualified and have appropriate resources. And then I also think um, making sure they're they're revising these compliance programs, especially with what's going on now. Um, And I think that, you know, in light of this discussion where there's testing with labs or um, telehealth visits and you're seeing these fact patterns come up um, in government enforcement space, I think it'd be very wise for um, healthcare practitioners to um, kind of look at what the government's looking at and um, assess, you know, do we have business arrangements that are likely going to um, fall under government scrutiny? Um, and you know, there's a number of resources that uh, practitioners can look to in structuring their business transactions to make sure that they're not falling inside these bounds. Um, the anti-kickback statute has several safe harbors, and um, you know, I mentioned the um, the. The 2019 compliance guidance from the government Um, and there's also several guidance pieces that have been published from HHS OIG that specifically deal with clinical labs. Um, Most recently um, there was a special fraud alert that was published by HHS OIG and um, there's been advisory opinions in the past um, limited, but there's at least one or two and um, um, OIG has even um, developed compliance um, expectations for clinical laboratories, um, which they published in 1998. Um, but you know, that is out there and it echoes a lot of the principles that have been um, that have been, you know, um, emphasized by the government in their sure. in their recent compliance documents.
1: Certainly, no, I think that's really great advice, and of course, pointing to OIG's special fraud alerts, advisory opinions, and compliance program guidance is always a good measure for uh, an AHLA lawyer uh, looking to uh, to provide guidance for their uh, for their clients, especially on these issues. Uh, so much, GeO, thank you again for your really insightful thoughts on laboratory enforcement in the genetic space, and of course the telehealth Uh, impacts from COVID-19. We really appreciate your insights uh, and your thoughts. We'll continue to monitor this area. And thanks again, of course, for listening to the AHLA podcast, and a big thank you to the BRG Group for their gracious sponsorship. Please look for more updates and future editions of the Fraud Abuse podcast on AHLA's website. Thank you very much.